Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And on today's podcast, I interview Michael Sowitz, a friend, a mentor, a former chief enthusiasm officer over at Fast Start Studios. He's also a serial entrepreneur and investor. He sits on multiple boards like the Tech Coast Venture Angels, as well as a number of nonprofits. In today's podcast, we talk about what does it take to be an up-and-coming entrepreneur? What are some of the games that entrepreneurs play that are a waste of time versus ones that are really constructive to help you level up your skills quickly? What are the holy grail for entrepreneurs? How does that evolve over time? What games can you play with your founders in order to avoid founder conflict? How do you find the right mediators and mentors? And then also, how do you be both the dungeon master and the player in the game of business? I am excited and thrilled to present my friend, Michael Sowitz. Hey, Michael, thank you for joining me today. Oh, happy to be here, Dylan. I am super excited to have you on. Um, so what you been up to lately? What's, what's new in your world? <laughs> uh, what isn't happening? Things are cooking here in OC. A lot of stuff going on for me personally. I've got a um, teaching gig at IVC, you know, EIR, board, mm-hmm. uh, on board member for Center for Entrepreneurship, Cal State Fullerton, uh, vice chair TCVN, yada, 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 a lot of startups, yes, 15, a lot of things going on, yeah. <laughs> 15 plates spinning all at the same time. Yes. And all trying to do it in four days a week here, yeah. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, since I've known you, you've always you've always been able to kind of keep every plate spinning and also keep a um, uh, really organized, systematic approach to what you do. Mm. Um, one of the things that I would, I would I would love to talk to you about is um, to me uh, a lot of things that you've done is is you're a perpetual mentor to uh, entrepreneurs inside the OC ecosystem. Right. And so a lot of times um, you see bright eyed young entrepreneurs that are super excited or passionate about getting up and going inside the entrepreneurial space. What do you think? What do you think are the games that the right entrepreneurs are playing these uh, that are getting out doing it right? And what do you think are some games that some of these young entrepreneurs are, are wasting their time on? What are the important games that some of these entrepreneurs should be playing versus they end up playing. Well, let's let's do it the other way around. What are some of the games being played that that do no good, if you will? Sure. Don't have a positive outcome, and that's I guess number one is drinking your own Kool Aid. Being got an idea, you run and you tell your your buds, and everybody go, oh man, that's great, let's do it, you know, and uh, that's not the process. Uh, we all know that. That's that's sort of a uh, a one-way trip uh, to to, to uh, pain, right? The pain of failure. So it's great to have the ideas, and it's great to bounce them off your friends. But there's a there's a method, right? Mm-hmm. You've been there, I've been there. So the methodology is is about getting into the marketplace. It's talking to potential customers in a in a way that um, you're collecting information, you're collecting deep, granular data uh, in a methodical way. You're not stepping on your, your own data by saying things like, oh, would you buy this? Or, you know, what would you pay for this? No, that's, that's sort of the wrong way. So uh, number one is drinking your own Kool-Aid. I could definitely see that. Sometimes it's hard, though, to see the forest through the trees on, well, I want to, I, I asked my mom. She said she loved it. And I've done this in the past where I, I, was, I was in a t-shirt business. I was making t-shirts. I went to my mom. She said it was awesome. And then I went and printed up a whole bunch of t-shirts and not even my mom would buy it. Yeah, and, and, exactly. So the corollary to that is um, not, to, not to drink your own Kool-Aid. And then the next thing is, you know, don't go into business with your friends. Uh, that that's the next big one, you know. And guess what? I'm putting my hand in the air and acknowledging I've done it a couple of times. Sorry that I did. I guess I'm a slow learner, but uh, it, it 
The numbers are there. Uh, 68% of all startups fail because of founder discord. We've seen it. I just don't like being part of it. And that's my New Year's resolution, not to do that one again. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Well, with that, when founders fight, is there any types of systems or mechanisms or tools, tips that they could put in place for, okay, I'm feeling this conflict, right? And instead of going off and letting it fester, what could they do preemptively? You know, let's just say somebody already went in with their best friend. They're already launching this business. They're, they're in it neck deep, but they don't know, they don't know how to resolve those conflicts or they're just getting into that business and they, and they're not going to separate from that situation. What, what tactics or what systems should they put in place in order to be able to mitigate that founder conflict? Right. So doing it correct would have um, being in, put in place a dispute resolution mechanism. Mm-hmm. And uh, for most founders, what I would say is identify that level head, that mentor that you can go to before things explode all over everybody and that you could go there and say, hey, could you listen? We have a, a disagreement. Could you give us some feedback? So mentors can solve all those problems if you're open to that. And if the mentor can't do it, then the next step in that in that dispute resolution is um, is bringing in a professional, mm-hmm. right? And it's non-binding and going back and forth with that professional, you can get a hopefully get a look at what's bugging the other the other person or the other people so you can see their position without giving up on your position. So I like that with a, um, you know, a professional mediator that knows how to, you know, get the best out of it, meaning get everybody to, to, to say what's really bothering them. Because mm-hmm. as you know, most of the disputes are not about the thing they they think they're disputing about. It's something else, else and it's just uh, festered or vented through uh, one way. So, uh, you know, a professional mediator can get to the heart of things and usually get things solved before you go to DEFCON 3 uh, in dispute resolution. We, we don't want to go there. Yeah, that's a couple things about that. One being, as a guy, and correct me if I'm wrong here, often we're only allowed to feel two emotions. Uh, I'm good and I'm angry. And often we don't even get to the I'm angry. So mostly when people say, how you doing? You go, I'm good, right? And you don't even get past that. What would you recommend if there's founders that can smell that there's something wrong, but whenever they, they bring it up, it's not actually being brought up or they feel like it's just being brushed aside? Is there is there any types of, before we get into, because I do want to also ask, you know, what are some good, questions you could ask mentors to be able to qualify them as good mediators mm. but before that how do you if, if, if you bring it up go hey is there something wrong I'm like no i'm fine and you're like mm, i think there's something more here what would you recommend as the, the next follow-on questions to try to get someone to open up well that's <laughs> that's huge <laughs> i don't know if i can answer that question uh you know uh, besides writing a dear abby type column <laughs> but you know you can't get someone to open up who doesn't want to open up right mm-hmm. so uh, for me it's about creating an environment that will hopefully lend towards that sort mm-hmm. of that safe place that era of I can say something without retribution or I could get this off my chest without it being held against me forever. It's the environment and a good mediator will create an environment that is safe. And it may be separating the combatants and just having those one-on-ones and, and not having the, your, your co-founder in the room. So uh, there's techniques like that. But to get to the heart, and I think you know, part of it is Simon Sinek's why. Mm-hmm. Right. Peel it back. Get to why. What? Not only why are you arguing? Arguing. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to do what you're doing? And get refocused on the positive. How do we build this thing versus how do we throw stones at each other? And I think uh, Cynic was right on all that. Nice. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is around. We might be fighting 
over the tactics and maybe even the strategies, but if we can align on the vision, then everything else will sort itself on the way down. Yeah, you got a better chance. Got a better chance. So say, hey, I know you think the green will get us to the, to the end goal. I think the blue. Maybe we'll just talk about the end goal, and then we'll work backwards from that till we find something that feels good along that path, and we can feel where we go from there. You want a job as a mediator? Nope. <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you nailed it. That was well said. Okay. Well, this helps me to understand, too, yeah. when there's, when you know, there's sometimes when you're in the heat of things, you don't really understand how to articulate or communicate and it gets all aggro monkey. So how do you, how do you put those practices in place ahead of time so that you can, you can you know, prevent that? <laughs> well, I can talk about it better than I can do it. In fact, I just withdrew uh, from a team I've been with for two years because of one of these blowups and, and, um, you know, the parties just don't want to communicate. And without that, there's no, there's Forget about putting a band-aid on it. There's no real solution if people can't talk. So, you know, I take sort of a Darwinian approach. Uh And if they can't talk, then maybe it's good that you break up, right? Get to the point where this is unhealthy, and instead of just being an unhealthy thing, it just makes more sense to walk away and allow things to kind of uh, heal naturally, if it would. With a mediator or a mentor, I mean... Either one of these questions. One, what are good questions to understand if this person is a good mediator or mentor in this situation? Two, how would someone find a mediator or mentor mentor for something like this? Mm. So, um, I guess part of it comes with gray hair. You just uh. living long enough, doing enough, being involved enough to have some history, mm. uh, and that's one. And two, making sure that your mediator it doesn't have a you know horse in the race that there's no no benefit no ulterior motive that you know to color it one way or another so then maybe setting up beforehand you have a conflict resolution and go hey um i know this uh, gray-haired gentleman or woman um who has a lot of experience who is impartial to both of us. I don't really, I'm not really friends with them or best friend. It's not, you know, a significant other. And we can set up a structure beforehand to say, when we have a conflict, we can have some sort of keywords or terminology, some sort of uh, system to say, okay, uh, insert process, uh, mini side quest, if you would, uh, conflict resolution, where we then meet up. And if it's DEF CON, you know, uh, four, you know, or, or whatever the lower DEFCON is, then we can do it together. But if it escalates, then we separate, we can write down our feelings and we can, we can work through the whole process. Right. That's, that's part of it. Um, in this recent one I've been involved in, uh, immediately reached out to a clinical psychologist. Mm. All right. Cause you know, tempers flare, egos get involved. And, um, for me, it was, you know, I, I, I usually can control myself better than I did that day that everything <laughs> exploded. So I wanted to talk to a clinical psychologist to say, hey, you know, did I act appropriately? Am I mm-hmm. looking at this correctly? Give me some feedback. Am, am I psychotic or am I, you know, such an egomaniac that I didn't see what was going on? And then ultimately to have the psychologist work with the entire team because you know, there's obviously anger issues that are going to come up again if you don't deal with them properly. So my approach on this particular one was to reach out to to someone who had the experience and had done it many times for uh, private equity groups. And, uh, you know, I got got this clinical psychologist actually through our investors. Wow. Yeah, I went to the investors and I said, hey, this is what's going on. You know, you guys just put, you know, a whole bunch of money in here and, you know, we've got some issues. And they said, ah, been through it dozens of times. uh, And we always bring in uh, clinical psychologists. I said, hey, let's do it again wound up setting up a session so uh, I don't I don't know the next step if the rest of the team will do what I did but for me I felt better you know that's awesome um both like for me one of the things I've always felt to be um the the gray areas of an entrepreneur is how much advice do you take in versus how much do you go with your own opinions and say I know best right and that balance between being able to be 
receptive, but not only receptive, but also willing to go out and seek advice to be able to say, I don't know this and, and I'm in over my head. Please help me. So my answer to that is in line with the first sentence is, you know, do you go with your gut? Mm-hmm. And um, I know this might sound kind of odd or crazy, but my answer is yes, right? But it's it's sort of um, colored, right? So, yeah, at the end of the day, you're the you're the entrepreneur, you're the founder, mm-hmm. you're the one creating vision. So you got to go with your gut, but not until you've gathered enough information to make a valid decision, right? So yeah, you know, you've got to go that way, but first open to possibilities, solutions, new input, and maybe that will change what you were going to say with your gut. But at the end of the day, it's you, and the Mm -hmm. team is built around your vision. The investors have come in because of your vision. So you got to go with your gut, and you know, that's, that might might sound kind of crazy for a guy like me who you've known me for a long time and it's I speak about mentors day in day out tried to surround everybody at fast start with 70 or 80 really smart people I do believe in mentors but also you you've got to you've got to stand up and take ownership mm-hmm. and it's getting good feedback good input from mentors to allow you to make the decision and go with your decision. Absolutely. I do have questions on that, but before that, could you talk a little bit about Fast Start? Ah, so definitely a passion play. Um, Fast Start did a couple of different things. Um, One is in my stage of life, um, I had been a taker for 40, 50 years being building my business and businesses. And I was very fortunate to have role models and mentors as I grew and and was successful. And I got to a point where I couldn't thank them. You know, most of Mm -hmm. them were not alive anymore or, you know, there's nothing I could do other than to say thank you. So the best thing I thought was to to honor what they did for me by passing it along to someone else. Maybe it's karma depends on, you know, your your philosophy. But it, it was my time to give back. And I thought that was the better way to give back mm-hmm. was to set up an environment to support startups and entrepreneurs, give them a chance. Um, I had a successful exit, so I was using some of that cash to underwrite their expenses and and maybe change our community one startup at a time and maybe make a, 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 a better place in the afterlife for me by getting some karma points by doing something good for a change. Thank you for sharing that. Fast Start to me had a lot of impact. You brought in a lot of amazing people and some amazing learning lessons to the whole process and also met um, entrepreneurs that I am still friends with today and to watch them kind of grow and evolve and, you know, move through all the processes that they've, they've gone through. Like, you know, I had, I had uh, Michelle Haddad on and mm-hmm. hearing about his evolutions from Fast Start to Luminous Labs to Y Combinator and all the lessons he's learned along the way. You know, it, it, it was really a home for our wayward entrepreneurs um, looking to you know figure out what is entrepreneurship and what is you know the business and how do you scale and what are the common problems that we run across so it was an incredible place for us to not only learn connect and grow in terms of if there is an entrepreneur who has a mentor maybe he can't give back to the mentor directly but what do you think are certain things that uh, are rewarding for mentors to uh, receive or see their their um, disciples or their the people that their mentees yeah. are going through the process? No, I th- very well uh, said because yeah, what is that? And like you said, you usually can't pay anybody back that way. But you know, the entrepreneur you just spoke of, um, Michelle Haddad, Mish. Um, he's classic, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we, uh, we got the first raise. Uh, the team moved to uh, San Francisco. They raised more money, a whole mm-hmm. bunch of money. And then he, you know, went on to his next gig. But all along, 
he kept in communication with me. Yeah, he was in San Francisco, but every now and then uh, uh, get a text or an email or when he was mm-hmm. downhill here, it was like, hey, let's grab coffee and catch up. That that meant a ton to me. Still does. Still does. Um, other people, um, the guy that introduced you and I together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Vac, Vac Sambath. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't seen him for six months. Uh, it was great to catch up. And, you know, uh, it, those kinds of things. You could be distant, but not forgotten. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the cool thing, is to hear what's going on, um, you know, it's really awesome uh, to hear. Yeah, I, I remember you told me such and such, and I used it, and it worked. Thank you. That's 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 worth everything. That's beautiful. Yeah, I had back on as well mm. on the yes, and the yeah, we we still have lessons that we talk about and recite, and and, um, and it's awesome to see them get applied in in the day to day business that you don't expect to pop up, and they yeah. they do come around. With that, I mean. What do you think in terms of like threshold guardians are typical battles? One is founder conflict and how to resolve past that. What's another uh, threshold guardian that you think entrepreneurs typically do battle with that they may not be prepared for that might kick their butt unless they have some sort of mentor guidance? Yeah. So one of them is self-imposed. Mm. And that is the search for money, right? Mm. So as a CEO, it just sucks your time Mm -hmm. constantly. And once you make that raise, it's not over. You're working for the next raise. You're keeping up, you know, investor relations and, and so forth instead of building a company, building a product. It takes you away. The whole search for money um, is, is an evil, you know, an evil we, we've in most cases have to put up with. But uh, that's that self-imposed guardian. It just stops you from doing so much. And I think, you know, um, you know, everybody that's been out there will, will say exactly the same thing. I had no idea it was going to take so much time. If someone's in the process of just starting to build out a product, right, and they're going along the route and they have two roads, one road being, okay, I'm just going to try to get customers and do that, or the other one is I'm going to try to raise funds. What are some indicators, some signs that they should know that they should go for investment or they should focus down and get customers or is it a more of a matter of sequence? Yeah, so I think it's not as much sequence as uh, what industry are you in? You know, is it a, a, a new industry, some cutting mm-hmm. edge tech or is it a mature uh, business? Uh, that has a lot to do with it, right? Are you going to try to take market share from someone else? Right. Or are you trying to launch something that's never been done before? I think that has a, a big deal. Um, some things have longer sales cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, try right out of the box to do enterprise. You're going to find it's a really, really difficult thing. If you're uh, B2C, it's easier than B2B uh, unless you've got a really difficult product or service to deliver. So it, I'm going to, you know say that there's too many factors on that one but mm. in general right for me traction trumps all you want to raise money get traction how do you get traction right get customers whether they give you their cash or they give you their contact information and opt in makes no difference it's the fact that you can now go to an investor with proof of concept with traction makes life easier so in order of traction, um, let me know if I'm on point or if, I, if I'm off. There is uh, letters of intent. There are free customers to just build case mm-hmm. studies. There are paying customers. Then there's paying customers to where there's revenue. And then there's revenue to profit. Yes. In the order, is there anything else on that path, either bef- before or after that, that is of importance to mention? Well, you know, uh, there's... There's shade, the 50 shades of gray in there. And I'm keeping this conversation clean, even though I brought that up. But yeah, there, there's um, incantations of each of those. Mm. Um, but that, you, you said it quite well. 
And even though there may be no transaction exchange mm -hmm. of, of goods or cash, having those initial customers is everything because now you can have a dialogue, a deep, granular dialogue, not just about their initial thought about your product or service, but what keeps them as a customer. Mm -hmm. That's, the, that's the, the whole thing. Everybody is happy when they make a sale. More important is what keeps that customer engaged, mm -hmm. right? So from that, from a happy customer, you get a referral. From the happy customer, you get uh, retention. Uh, from the happy customer, you get revenue. And the revenue is, is greater because you didn't have to buy that customer to acquire them uh, over and over again. They stayed engaged. So the important thing is to find out what was that? Was it really your product or service? Was it the way you interacted with them? Mm -hmm. it, was it being part of a community? I mean, when I think about things like that, Guy Kawasaki created um, uh, customers that were actually evangelists selling Apple in the early days. You know, that's, that's the key, is to find out what it is that turns a customer into an evangelist or an ambassador who brings you their friends, who brings you uh, their, their commitment uh, over and over again as, uh, as retention. So uh, that's more important than just being happy that you have a customer and made a sale. Once you have customers, now the real work begins is, is deep dive into what was that, right? Mm -hmm. Very rarely is it the actual product or the service. It's more the culture of your company, the way they were treated, the way they continue to be treated. Um, that's the harder work. Yeah, with that, it sounds like we talk about a, a um, economy of uh, experience. We are in an experience-driven economy and i feel like so much more of that we're shifting into a transformation-based economy how can you not only originally was give me an experience of a great night out give me an experience of this but now we're what can you do to change me what can you do to change my company mm -hmm. what can you do to you know give me if you're an apple product superpowers the ability to ways home uber my food postmates the things across so how does much like trying to dig at when we first started this conversation into, the, you know, getting not drinking your own Kool-Aid, what are questions to understand, to separate yourself from the Kool-Aid, to understand that you really have a, a rabid fan versus someone just likes you as a person and they really just want to make you happy and see you be successful, but they don't really actually find your product to be useful? Is there questions or processes <laughs> or mechanisms? Uh, hmm. I guess there's a whole bunch to that, but I would I would take it, dial it back to the first step, mm. All right? Um, that that you know first handhold or first kiss, okay? Before we go on to you know more serious stuff like marriage, and you know being a customer for life, um, I would say that. Extraordinary uh, UX, UI people are, are very few, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's a lot of UX, UI people running around, but the extraordinary ones are the ones that can do this. And um, there's a lot of different pieces because it's human nature. But one of the things that a lesson that I learned from a, a, a very successful entrepreneur, uh, David Perry. Mm -hmm. So... Um, he used to come to Fast Start, and he yeah. helped he helped a few of you. And he taught me the value of making things frictionless. Right? Mm -hmm. That was those are his words for removing obstacles between you and your customer. You know whether it's more clicks or you know harder to take the wrapper off the package or you know need to go out and buy batteries they should be included those kinds of things how to look at the entire environment the entire process and sequence and how do you remove steps how do you make it easier to make it just natural for people to fall in love with you your product etc starts with taking all the the work away may don't make it hard make it frictionless Gotcha. So maybe if uh, 
people that are doing UX design, user experience design, and they're mapping out their their product. Maybe they have it, or maybe it's just in their head. Maybe they're going to do a paper prototype, or, mm-hmm. or maybe they're demoing in front of their customers. But they could map that out and say, okay, they they get onboarded here. Here's the pattern. Um, this is their habit loop. You know, um, I want to check a thing, so I open my phone. I click XYZ and ultimately I'm looking for results. I'm looking to change my mood. I'm looking to check up on a thing. I'm looking to see my rating on Yelp, whatever the things might be. And then if you look at the whole process of your product and maybe you could give that a different buckets or sections, you could mark that levels of friction. Well, this one's easy, but this one is a little confusing and this one makes sense. You could kind of rate that as a, as a total friction and then try to figure out how do you slice down those friction points. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at every touch. And even after, um, whether it's the billing cycle, Mm -hmm. right, and how people are billed, and if there's a problem, how easily or quickly is that problem ascertained? Is it, you know, press, press two for customer service, you get to customer service, press three if it's billing, four if it's on and on and on through those decision trees. It's like, oh man, why can't they just help me with my problem, right? That's where you want to button mash the thing and say, give me an operator now. Yeah, exactly. So at every step, um, Mm -hmm. and then it it needs to be seamless, like you said, from beginning to end. And, And those are hard things to do. And there's some companies that have done it extraordinarily well, and they've benefited by it. I'm saying everybody should be looking that way. Got right? It. As long as you're doing business with human beings, mm-hmm. these are the things we react to. Sure. Because essentially, you know, we, we all want results, but we all hate effort. Right. So the question being is, you know, what's the result of your product? And then what's the friction to get your customer from where they're at to the result of that product? And if you can take that and remove the friction and make it seemingly something for nothing, i.e. just Google an answer, just, you know, put in the, the thing and there's no friction uber just click a button then you have a product that seemingly is something for nothing which is inherently all of us being lazy humans enjoy you know siri alexa Mm -hmm. they got it (laughs) right uh used to say it all the time your Mm -hmm. your catchphrase was i love to learn but i hate to read right (laughs) yes yes for the old product they're working on yeah exactly i mean that's exactly at the the heart of it you you nailed it back then and you know someday when you're rich and famous i'd love you to go back and you know launch that one again i'm coming back to it Uh, Mm -hmm. it always yeah there's always the i think with entrepreneurship you have you know 50 shiny objects to go for at any one point in time Mm -hmm. and who was it somebody said a quote one time that they're all if you're lucky You'll have one great idea and you'll have no other ideas for the rest of your life. So you can focus on that and then just make that great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to fall into that category, but uh, it sounds good. Well, well, with that, let me ask you this question. I mean, being someone who's kind of, you've gone through the entrepreneurial cycle, right? You've, you've gone, you've built the company, you've scaled the company, you've sold the company, you've been a mentor, you've, you've gone through the, the, the hero's journey of the startup life. When there's a young entrepreneur starting out, what is the holy grail that you think that they're typically seeking? And then what does that evolve into over time? Because so often for entrepreneurs like, oh, I need um, that first round of investment. I need I need these different things. But then once you get there, you realize that's not the mountaintop. There's a much larger amount. So how does the holy grail change over time? So I think it's different for everybody. But... I think um, a great example of that is Ben Horowitz and his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm, I'm not familiar. Yeah, so uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, right? Okay, yes. One of the largest VCs on the planet. And Ben, uh, before he became partners um, uh, at Andreessen, had his own startups. And he went through exactly what you're talking about with his different startups and the different problems. And um, he's, you know, it was very painful. And he uh, articulated extremely well in his book. So, and and by the way, I don't get any kickbacks from his (laughs) book. (laughs) Had to buy it like everybody else. 
But in there is exactly what you're talking about, right? You got a problem. You f- you find a way to solve the problem. That now is those that solutions in your your tool bag, right? Mm-hmm. And you go on and you get smacked in the forehead with another one. And it's just it's just that. So it's different from for for everyone. Just know it's it's out there. It's never easy street, right? You know, and the people that have had these huge exits uh, think that they're on easy street. Next thing you know. Uh, they got problems with their family, mm-hmm. right, or their health. It's, there's no escape in it. Life's hard, right? You know, it's it's the game, and uh, it's better to play it than not it's, play it. The Buddha, life is suffering. Yeah. So is entrepreneurship. Yeah. yeah. Well, with that, though, do you think, so you're saying it's, it's always different, um, the Holy Grail for different people. Um, have you seen, is there certain types of uh, personality traits or different types of characteristics that give you a sign that someone would be a good entrepreneur or their skills that they can develop? Is it something that's born or uh, bred? That's a good one. That's a real good one. But there's two things there I want to, I'll deal with one and then circle back to sure. the other. So this uh, nature versus nurture mm. thing, uh, I've been strongly for most of my life going, you know, Creativity and entrepreneurship is is DNA. You know, I've seen it in you know generations, and um, and then oh, two years ago, I guess I was teaching a course on innovation, mm-hmm. and uh, in order to teach the course, I had to sort of pinky swear that I wouldn't change the course <laughs> before I taught it at least one semester. They know me too well. And so um, I, I taught it the way it was, it was written, and it changed everything for me. A um, guy by the name of Drew Boyd, the strategic uh, inventive thinking, and uh, he proved to me mm-hmm. that innovation can be taught. It's not in your DNA. And, and the thing that got me was... He said, you know, like music, music is pure creativity, right? Mm -hmm. So the most successful writing team in history, Lennon McCartney, right? The Beatles, Mm -hmm. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, most successful uh, music creators in history. And guess what? They used a template for all their successful songs, you know, and he, he saw it, trapped it, and, and incorporated it into his uh, his book and his, his teachings. And I took that, uh, taught that course, and son of a gun, you know, we had students, and that, that class was really interesting because the youngest student was 17, my oldest was in his 60s. So wow. I had people from 17 to 60, I had a bunch of 20s and 30s, uh, but I had 40s and 50s, and three of them had advanced degrees in this class. And, you know, and others, like the one at 17, hadn't even graduated high school yet. So all different, you know, backgrounds, all different learning, um, and taught them these five templates that they could apply, and they were creating stuff. So I've changed, <laughs> you know. Uh, this this old dog did learn a new trick, and so I would say it's easy to say both, uh-huh. but I, but I would say, um, given enough time, I can teach people to create new stuff. It's the willingness to change yourself, yeah, the willingness right. to level up and, and get That's past it. that. So that goes back to your first question, mm-hmm. okay, um, about traits. So. This is a tough one because it's uh, Occam's razor in staying yeah. staying on the edge there, mm-hmm. in that it takes a strong sense of id, of ego. You have to have a, a strong understanding of what you can do, mm-hmm. and harness that with your vision, your desire. But that also is the the number one reason you you can fail, right? Because you you won't let your ego get out of the way for reason. Now you need that ego to have the drive, but it needs to be in check. Mm. Um, and that's that's one of the things. And and it's, it goes beyond just startups. Um, that's so funny. A friend of mine, David Coleman, uh, PhD. David launched a book last year called Death by Ego. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. So these were companies that he was at sea level mm. and witnessed it. 
and witnessed how incredible businesses were taken down by their CEO's ego. Uh, one of the ones I remember in that book so well, and this predates your time, but before you could just click on your uh, remote for your TV or say, you know, Netflix in, uh, into, into uh, your, your controller, mm. We had no online uh, guide of what was coming on when on TV. So there was a booklet that was sold every week uh, called TV Digest, right? I remember that. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, uh, check out. You had to buy it because you had no clue what was going to be on the yeah. three channels we had. Yeah, yeah. But uh, bottom line is that was such a monolith that everybody knew what that was it was a huge uh, seller very successful and owned the category no one came close and they crashed and burned because of the ego of the decisions that the CEO made he made it mm. to make himself feel good and bolster himself versus what was right for the company that is such a challenge the I always feel that the, the, the ultimate truths, the truths that are the most true are the ability to hold the complete opposites in your head at the same mm. time and realize that they're both true. Like I am, I am as big as the cosmos and I'm as little as a worm. That's right? it. Yeah. And that combination of how do you, how do you hold in your head as an entrepreneur, the concept that you know, you were creating this reality in your mind of this possible future with your product being the most frictionless, impactful, results-oriented product, and it is that, and you know it's that, and you can move forward on that, and you are certain about that vision while taking feedback and honest criticism and realizing that you have an ugly baby. Mm -hmm. How do you hold those two at the same time while, you know, being able to take that data in? Seems like such a challenge. It, it's, it has to be. I, I'm nowhere near that, but I, I aspire to that. Um, in the beginning, it was, uh, he'll go back to the Beatles, Lennon and McCartney, a fool on the hill. He sees mm -hmm. the sun going round, right? Mm -hmm. If you listen to the words of that song, it, it's, it speaks directly to what you're saying. And I always had that, you know, uh, vision in my head um, of being the fool on the hill because you live long enough to know things and, and can hold things in, in that better perspective. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, I was in China and... Um, the uh, manufacturer I was working with on the weekend uh, drove me uh, into the mountains um, mm -hmm. uh, outside of town, um, and we went to a Buddhist monastery, a Buddhist mm -hmm. monastery that was over 1,000 years old. Wow. Wow is right. Um, and it, was, it, it had great impact on me. Um, we're driving there, and I'm, I'm looking through all of, all of these incredible thick forests there on both sides of the, um, of the, of the highway that we're going on. And I, I said to uh, my host, it's, it's amazing that all those trees are exactly the same height. And he huh. said, well, that's because they were planted all at the same time. I said, what do you mean? This is, this is 50 miles so far we've driven of forest. He said, yeah, during the revolution, they cut down every single one of them. So they were all replanted at the same time. That's wow. why they're so high. So th that's how powerful the Cultural Revolution was. In China, they executed anyone who could read a book and so forth. And so here... In the midst of this, we go to a monastery that's been there 1,000 years, saw the test of time, all the revolution and all that stuff. So, you know, my mind was already going in that direction. And on the way out, I had a chance encounter with a young monk who mm -hmm. was doing his Tai Chi type exercise off by uh, a pond. And uh, I went over, and I didn't know if I should talk to him, didn't want to bug him, but he, he stopped what he was doing because he wanted to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And it just this 
15, 20 minute conversation. And it wasn't about the things we're talking about, Dylan, mm-hmm. but I could feel what was going on. And he was radiating this, this, um, this embodiment of being able to, to take in and to process without it letting, letting you get emotional about it, except there was emotion. The emotion was deep satisfaction and well-being. Mm. And I don't know, I guess I'm kind of raving about this, but the impact on me from that one young man um, in China, a world away, it stayed with me, obviously, about how to be in touch with yourself. And I think that was what, you know, part of our conversation was that he was he was trying to become a, a more at one with the world around us. And it was about how he was processing. So uh, it, it had great impact on me, obviously, and still does. Well, we definitely are, speaking of the whole duality approach, we are both completely individuals, autonomous beings, as well as connected to the collective whole like if you see someone laugh and you can't help but a giggle you see you see some guy tv um you know gets uh, kicked in the gonads and you feel it every guy makes mm. the same maneuver yeah. because we are both individuals and we are also connected and we all have this sense of perpetual angst you know especially in the western civilization of uh, gotta go gotta do gotta make gotta be and and that versus the opposite of that that complete satisfaction for lack of a better term do you believe and i've heard conflicting opinions on this do you believe it's possible to have that deep satisfaction as a human and also be able to stay with the dogged determination to be an entrepreneur do you need to be perpetually unhappy as an entrepreneur mm. in order to keep growing and thriving are you allowed as a, as a human to be able to do that so i'll answer in kind of a obtuse way um with the borg right mm-hmm. the, the borg of resistance is futile right uh-huh. that's what the borg wants right yeah. The, the the hive the collective the collective think and that's that's my analogy for the the question that you asked right you don't have to give in to the borg even though the borg says resistance is futile it's not you just have to find a different way a different mm-hmm. path for me um it's being here in oc four days a week and up at my ranch three days a week mm-hmm. and that's that's my safe place that's what gets me um back to even keel gets my batteries recharged and gives me new ideas to come down the hill and you know throw it around all you young guys you know (laughs) make you all crazy with the things i've thought up this during the weekend uh but um everybody needs to find that place i know that you meditate every morning and Mm -hmm. that's how you find that place it for some people is running or swimming or you know uh you know playing with their cat they're all the same it's getting to that place Mm -hmm. where um you you can get in t- more in touch with who you really are mm-hmm. and we all need to do that more often and one of the problems to being you know sort of all out seven uh, days a week 24 hours a day with your startup which is what it takes you can't get out of your own way so you have to find some way to do a reset mm-hmm. right to be more effective so you believe that you don't necessarily have to be perpetually an angst and that maybe if you're doing it at, you know, 90 miles an hour all the time, that over time you will go from 90 miles at top speed to 80 to 70. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in that. You're, you're, you're counterproductive, right? Got it. Is there any, I guess, first of all, indicators or cues that you maybe have wandered off the path <laughs> and you are, you are into the thickets? Yeah, so um, part of that is, you know, we talked about mentors, mm. um, how important they are. There's another component 
right? So for me, there's three levels of learning. Mm-hmm. One is, um, you know, active learning. You uh, get get the information through higher learning universities or whatever, or you could self educate books, tapes, mm-hmm. YouTube courses, whatever. But you get that knowledge, right? Yeah. And if you don't get it that way, then you surround yourself with mentors that have it, and you know they'll share it with you. And if you if it's not higher learning or self education or mentors, the next thing are peers, mm-hmm. right? People who are like you that share their experiences, right? That's that's powerful. That's the power behind Y Combinator or mm-hmm. the alum, not the process or the program itself. And I would say the same thing. I've been fortunate enough um, that in. 2000, uh, I joined a peer group. Mm-hmm. We were all CEOs of non-competing franchise companies. So, uh, and we met and did these peer reviews. So we got naked. You know, there was no place to hide. You you did to, uh, you showed your um, your your P&Ls, you talked about your HR, your things in your company, whether it's production, sales, whatever, and you couldn't BS these other people because they were going through the same thing. And I can tell you that for my company, every important decision that I made since 2000, I bounced it off of them first mm. to see if I was crazy or not. And and that that's it. So having that peer group, mm-hmm. People that may have been through it before um, is so critical, and it's it's some of the most um, fun and entertaining education because they're like you, they're peers, they're like you but different. But you're sharing your input with them, and they with you. And so, to answer your question, I had gone. 101 days straight, seven days a week, except I took a half a day for Thanksgiving. Half a day? Uh, Half a day. Well, I'd be with the family, (laughs) right? So um, it was my turn. I was going through this whole thing, and um, this one guy stopped me in the group, and he says, let me tell you a story that happened to me like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was uh, at Xerox, and, you know, I was a middle manager, and we were, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and we were launching this new product, and it was late one night, and I'm sitting with my direct supervisor going over my numbers, and, you know, of what we just did with the such and such Model X2B or whatever, and he said, uh, you know, Ed, Ed, my buddy's name was Ed, Ed, um, I haven't seen where you put in for vacation. And Ed goes, well, you know, we just launched the X2B, and I've been out there with key customers, and, you know, next month we're launching the such and such, so, you know, we need to get this product out there. And he goes, yeah, we sure do. He says, but Ed, until you can take a vacation, you haven't done what we hired you for, which was to build a team. And bam, that just slapped me in the forehead Wow! that I had been working seven days a week instead of getting things done, mm-hmm. instead of building a team that could do that. So I put a cap on my company. We could grow only as it, to, to the extent of my output, right? If we wanted to grow, we had to grow to the extent of the company's output. That changed things. And uh, so I told my wife I was going to... Uh, take Sundays off. I was only going to work six days a week. And she had a good laugh at that one. (laughs) Yeah, all right, sure. Um, And I did it. And wow, it was like, this is cool, you know. And I actually felt better on Mondays. Um, So my next iteration about six months later is I'm only going to work five and a half days a week. I could not give Mm -hmm. up (laughs) Saturday, you know. I liked Saturdays anyhow. No one was around. I was I was productive. But again, it had to go back to what was I supposed to be doing mm-hmm. as senior management, and that is running a company, helping build competency, helping people grow into their positions and beyond. 
And um, I finally got it down to that I was working five days yeah. a week. We were doing more volume. Uh, the company was growing. And they were right. It took me a long time to get there. So it's that kind of a thing. Uh, it's going to affect everybody in different ways, Dylan. But, you know, you keep... Keep your mind open. You'll f- come to all your shortcomings mm-hmm. and hopefully <laughs> overcome them. <laughs> Ideally. Well, with that, it sounds like when you're at the lower levels, when you're starting out and you're, you're just beginning on this path, yeah. you tend to substitute efficiency for effort, mm-hmm. right? So you, you put in massive amounts of energy. You grind through things. You burn the candle at both ends and the middle to make it happen. But over time, you seem to realize that, okay, I'm doing all of this, but what are the most effective pieces along this path that I can carve out, right? What is the 80-20 that I'm really good at to say that I I need to focus on, for example, sales and outsourcing, mm-hmm. right? I need to be able to sell and I need to be able to get other people to do those types of things, right? If someone was to build up a skill tree of effort and say, okay, let's just say maybe in the areas of either entrepreneurship or sales, what are those different skill sets, delegation being one of them, that they need to build up to really get that overall um, uh, leveling up of that skill tree of abilities? Whew. So I would say there's, there's sort of two components to that. Um, the first is um, is management is how to manage people mm-hmm. um, I'm a believer in um, uh, the one minute manager mm-hmm. and uh, the follow up books to that because I grabbed a hold of the one minute manager started doing it and realized that I was taking on everybody else's weight and I should have read all the books together instead of just the first one and racing out there because in the second book it takes talks about taking the monkey on your back from other people so you know it's it's management once you build your management skills the next thing is I've only recently come onto this and that's the use of OKRs I think it's I don't know what that I is. think they're critical so OKR stands for objective objectives and key results so um, 1977, Andy Grove starts Intel. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant. Uh, so he had this goal-setting system called OKRs and uh, was using it to build Intel. And one of the um, early hires was a guy by the name of John Dewar. So John Dewar did well with Andy Grove at Intel, and he left, and he became the uh, first investor into Google when Google had less than 60 employees. Wow. And uh, he brought OKRs to Google at 60 employees. Well, Google's got more than 87,000 employees, and they still use OKRs. Not only are OKRs for company and department and team goals, but every individual in the company has an OKR that ties back to the corporate. So 87,000 people every week we do a stand-up and review their OKRs at Google. Not only that, but now Twitter, LinkedIn, Spotify, and Airbnb all use OKRs. Wow. Can you give an example of an OKR, what that would look like? Yeah. So um, they're um, in in tranches or sprints, uh, 90 days. Mm -hmm. So you could to have uh, an objective for Q2 and Q3 and the key results are how are we going to achieve our objective by month mm-hmm. or week, those kinds of things. Um, you do um, a weekly stand-up, mm-hmm. uh, very much like like Agile or Sprint, mm-hmm. but, but much simpler. And uh, it's setting the company goal and not more than three or five, the things that can be attained and -hmm. breaking it into um, digestible chunks, sharing um, that objective by department. So each department creates their own objectives that support the company's objectives and key results that tie to the companies and so on and so on. So it's ownership, it's responsibility. That's one thing I I find interesting and also challenging. What I mean by that is 
In the game of life and business, it is so difficult to be both the dungeon master and the player in the game. And what you're describing here is the ability to do both. The ability to say, hey, here's the here's the rules of the game. Here are the OKRs. This is how we play the mm-hmm. game. And then going and playing the game. How do you set a cadence for... Because very often, I've noticed, unless there's you have dogged determination or discipline, how do you set a cadence, um, a frictionless system for yourself, as you were, to be able to go back and review that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to be able to revisit those OKRs so you can then focus on making those things happen versus um, paying attention to them? Yeah, so one of the things I like about OKRs is um, excellence is the bane of good, meaning good is good Mm -hmm. so don't strive don't spend weeks trying to find the optimum um, objective Mm -hmm. choose an objective that realistically uh, will get the company to the next step and set your uh, key results to get there and if you hit 75% yay right (laughs) It, it doesn't have to be 100%. And because of that, and because the team hit it at 52% of goal, this uh, period, next period, we're going to better that. So it gives people to to buy into it instead of being squashed and beat up when they miss their first one. It's And it's about empowerment. It's about... The team setting the goal. It's about the individual setting their own goal as part of the team. Uh, You know, that's what I I like about this thing. And with a quick stand up, as I know you're a big proponent of stand ups, Mm -hmm. you know, in five minutes in your department, it's done. Everybody knows where everybody else is. You can call for help if you need help. It's okay. And if you need to realign, there's a process for that too. It's about moving forward, not you know, all or nothing. It's about incremental uh, success and advances. A lot like the Japanese Kaizen, mm. uh, constant improvement. It mm. is exactly that added to sort of benchmarks where everybody can see together and it's transparent. That's the other good part about it. So it sounds like you have you're leveling up your skills around not only management, but also the ability to to delegate, um, create the the communication and the discipline to say, okay, here's the company OKRs, and then you trickle that down. So, okay, everybody through your own uh, autonomy and agency, create your own, but then become an alignment so that we are also a collectively part of the team. At the same time, the all or nothing mindset, where I'm either a victor or a victim, is is not the way to create a healthy culture. Yes, and instead, what you're looking for is the ability to say, look, did you take an imperfect action to get halfway to the goalpost, great. We're now halfway closer. So instead of it being the, the cuff, cup is half empty because we only got halfway there, celebrate the wins that will empower the actions, will get the team moving with you so that you can all be in alignment and then be able to then play the game and win together. Yeah, yeah you should be teaching this <laughs> and not me. <laughs> but yeah, I believe in it. Uh, in fact, um, uh, brought that I taught that a couple of weeks uh-huh. ago to 17 very different businesses in the city of Brea uh, doing a program uh, with the Brea Chamber of Commerce and uh, took 17 of their members that wanted to get to the next level some were, were semi-new businesses, some were as old as 20 years, but they had plateaued, and this was, how do I get to the next business, next level, do, what does that look like, what mm-hmm. do I have to do, um, HR, accounting, uh, you know, product development, whatever that is for every each of them, and taking them through a, a process to get there. So the first was to understand their KPIs, mm-hmm. and then give them goal setting, so they, those KPIs can be imported into this this system of goal setting or OKRs. That's beautiful. 
And if somebody wanted to find you, uh, mm. maybe a young mentee that was <laughs> reaching out, uh, that was looking for some help or guidance, how could someone find you? So now that I'm not doing Fast Start anymore, um, the easiest way is to catch me here. Mm. Uh, when I say here, we're sitting at the Cal State Fullerton SBDC, which stands for Small Business Development Center. So my my current gig at, outside of teaching is to mentor, to coach. And the cool thing is it's at no cost to the people that are coming here for help for their business. And the cool thing for me is I'm being compensated by the Small Business Administration. So it's a federal program to help uh, start and build more businesses. A win-win-win all the way around. Right. So uh, I can be uh, uh, pinged at uh, Michael dot sawitz that's s-a-w-i-t-z at o-c-i-e s-b-d-c michael dot sawitz at o-c-i-e s-b-d-c dot com and that'll get you here awesome michael thank you for coming on today oh my pleasure dylan have a beautiful day bye now thank you for listening to the podcast If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventurers. Until next time.